With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Fantasy Magazine. Welcome to the Fantasy Magazine Story Podcast. Here at Fantasy, we're excited to publish this special issue, People of Color Destroy Fantasy. Our guest editor and original fiction editor for this special issue is Daniel Jose Older. Our reprints were selected by Amal El Motar. Our nonfiction was curated by Tobias S. Buckel. And your guest host is the ever-present Terrence Taylor. People of Color Destroy Fantasy contains eight fantasy stories, four original, never-before-published pieces, alongside four fantasy classics. There's also an array of nonfiction features, as well as interviews with several of the authors. This podcast will bring you two of our fiction selections this month, but if you want to get the whole issue, the ebook is available for just $2.99. The trade paperback edition is available for $12.99. It is an honor and a delight to bring Fantasy Magazine to you in this special celebration of creators of color writing and editing short science fiction. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to learn more about the Destroy projects, including where you can purchase the whole issue in ebook or trade paperback format, please visit DestroySF.com. This story is about a magical mother and the legacy she leaves behind. All mothers seem like magic to me, and each time I see a young black mom patiently dealing with a young son bouncing off the walls of the subway or store with a mile a minute mouth, well, I silently thank mine for having managed to endure as well as she did, and more, to encourage me when that manic mind went in a direction that could discipline it. People of color have many mystical belief structures, and this one is African-influenced, in a land where magic is not only real, but powerful enough to be made illegal. The mother in question has been dead five years, but her reputation as a freedom-fighting witch is still renowned and haunts her daughter after her father's death. Rather than tell you more, let me say that our story this week is performed by Jamie Grant. Enjoy. The Things My Mother Left Me by P. DeJ Lee Clark Towsie sat listening to her aunts, who crowded in a circle at the far end of the room. Their dresses were a kaleidoscope of greens, reds, blues, and yellows, each worked with repeating patterns that shifted with the eye. Huddled like that, they seemed to her one polychromatic beast with seven heads and fourteen limbs. None of them made an effort to whisper as they planned her life. "'Girl doesn't need such a big house.' "'Maybe one of us takes her in.' 
Better to marry her off. Who would want her? Oh, she's pretty enough. Growing good wide hips make plenty children. But what kind of wife would she be? No mother to teach her. Don't talk about that woman. Thief, criminal, witch, deserved what she got. We'll do what's best for the girl, of course. Talsi shifted the clay pot in her lap. It was hot, even through the fabric of her wrap skirt. Her aunt brought food every day, nine in all, since her father's body had been washed and buried, so withered by the shaking sickness that had claimed him. But the mourning period would soon end, and something had to be done with her. Were she a boy of 15, they'd probably send her to apprentice with a guild house or to study alchemical herbology at an Nganga school. But to her aunts, only strange city girls apprenticed themselves out. And she wasn't wealthy enough to be sent off to learn. No, she'd likely end up a nursemaid to some older cousin. Or perhaps she might fetch a good bride price. Anything to get her out of this house, which was the real prize. Talsi looked down to the stool that curved to fit her frame. It had been carved by her father's hand. He'd put together every bit of this house, adding rooms and extensions. It seemed unnecessary with only the two of them. But he had promised her mother a grand home and was intent on bequeathing this gift, whether she dwelled in this life or the next. When her spirit comes to visit, he'd often say, she will like it very much. Five years had passed since her mother's death. None of her aunts had approved of her father marrying a woman with no people or family. And then she'd gone and gotten herself killed. He had a duty to remarry, they insisted. But he hadn't. Instead, he'd set about building a house to her memory. How it infuriated them. A smile tugged Talsi's lips at the thought. So you still have your good spirits. She looked up to find that her aunts had sidled up before her. They were infuriatingly good at that. One caressed her cheek. Another patted her thick plaits of hair. A third pinched the side rolls beneath her top. It felt more an appraisal than affection. How pretty you are. Keeping a nice size. So good to take care of your father. A fine young woman you'll make. Don't worry. Won't leave you alone in this big house. You'll be in our care. Seven new mothers. This time, Talsi forced a smile, if only to hold back the bile. When they finally left, she sat back wearily. They'd come again tomorrow, and the day after that. Then, one day, she'd be told to pack her things. Off she'd go to whatever fate they'd decided. Seven crocodiles they were, all with their mouths wide, ready to eat her up. But, like the clever birds that fed between those sharp teeth, she was determined to outwit them. Moving to sit on a reed mat, she opened the clay pot to find roasted cassava, 
boiled figs, and chicken in a spicy palm nut sauce. She spooned some into a bowl, then set empty plates for her father and mother, for even spirits needed nourishment. As she ate, she began to plot her escape. She was still plotting long after the wounded moon ascended to bathe the town of Epo'ulu in her broken light. By morning, Tausi had fashioned a plan. She didn't have much money, 100 ingots of red gold and some blue silvers, but it was enough, perhaps, to book passage out of Epo'ulu. She'd leave this backwater town behind and head to a city, perhaps even one of the great cities. Once her aunts had the house, she doubted they'd expend much time hunting her. The Ten Chiefdoms was a big place, after all. She arrived at the river market by midday. From stalls, hawkers cried out their goods. Earthenware, wild meat, printed cloth, brass fittings, metal boilers, and other items bartered along the trade routes of the chiefdoms. Her first stop was with the boatmen that idled about the Luaba River, whose murky waters churned between banks of green. She stopped short at sight of a gutted fangfish hanging by its tail from a rack. The monster was easily taller than she was, with teeth like knives. Caught her out on the Luaba, a grizzled boatman boasted. The airfish strike me down if I'm lying. Took a piece of me with her, too. He held up a bandaged hand, missing two fingers. Tausi looked over his boat, a small steam paddler. If fish that size roamed this river, she preferred something bigger. She moved on to the other boatmen, inquiring prices to the nearest city, perhaps Kasi or Mabasa. Most shook their heads, explaining they only ferried between the towns lining the Luaba. A few laughed off her request, shooing away the mischievous runaway girl. She stalked from them, fuming at this upset in her plans. Take care, daughter, someone called. Tausi looked down to find a woman seated on an expanse of cloth. Her arms extended out over a set of small gourds, fearing they might be trampled. I'm sorry, Mama, Tausi cried. The woman shook a head of braided white ringlets. The young are always in a hurry, as if they have somewhere to go, she scolded, then brightened. Perhaps, however, I have something that pleases you. Embarrassed at her negligence, Tausi squatted to inspect the woman's gourds. Each had been polished until they shined, and then painted with animals. She opened one decorated with a green gecko to find a sweet-smelling cream. When she rubbed a bit on her arm, her skin glistened like polished nightstone. So beautiful, the woman admired. She held up wrinkled hands the hue of tilled soil. I once had such skin, passed on from my mother. I can see your mother has done the same. You look very much like her, in fact. Tausi looked up at that. She had her father's curving eyes, but was growing into her mother daily. The same round cheeks, plump body, and strong legs. 
Most around Epo'ulu considered it rude to mention that in public, save for whispered glances. Not so this woman, it appeared. I mourn your father, she offered, as I mourned your mother. Some of us still carry her ways. We have not forgotten. The woman bent to blow a gentle breath over her gourds. There was a familiar prickling in the air, and all along their surfaces, the painted animals began to dance. Tausi almost dropped the gourd where the gecko now flicked a fat tail. Mama, no! Stop! Her voice was a whisper, but the urgency must have carried, for the paintings went still. She released a breath. Mama, you mustn't do that. Someone could see. Even now, her eyes scanned about for witnesses. Of all crimes in the ten chiefdoms, none was as terrible as magic. The woman looked disappointed. I had thought... She began, then stiffened. Must we hide what our mothers pass on to us? Tausi stared at the woman. Was she mad? If you don't hide, Mama, someone will report you. She lowered her voice further. Witch hunters are never far. The woman snorted, as if one could dismiss such a thing. The hounds of these Efe priests who now govern us? It was such men who twisted magic for their wars and broke the world. But it is we who suffer. Let them unleash their dogs. We can only show the courage of your mother. Some of us still revere her. Our bandit queen. Tausi flinched at hearing the name spoken aloud. Take care, Mama, she warned, of insulting the crocodile while so close to the river. The woman laughed sadly. Daughter, to the crocodiles, we are all food. A horn blared across the market, and Tausi seized the chance to break away from the reckless woman. She hastily offered a blue silver for the gourd and left towards the source of the tumult. A crowd had gathered, and she maneuvered her way through before she could see what drew them. It was a caravan, only... It didn't look like any caravan she'd ever seen. It was made up of what appeared to be small, rounded houses on wheels. But where Epo'ulu's homes were adorned with repeating geometric patterns, these were painted in vibrant pastels. Feathered bush lizards pulled the carriages, their iridescent scales shimmering beneath the sun. The caravan arrayed into a circle, and on one of the houses a yellow door swung open. The tall man that stepped out was by far the most striking figure Tausi had ever seen. A mud-colored fabric wrapped his shoulders and torso, while a long kilt hung from his waist, made up of strips of leather dyed every conceivable hue. Affixed to these were tassels and bells, so that he rattled as he walked. One hand clutched a cord tied to a small collared baboon with crimson wings. The creature perched on his shoulder and chittered noisily from a blue muzzle. The man strode forward, opening his arms as wide as his bearded smile. When he spoke, his voice boomed in the drawling accents of the western provinces. 
people of Epo'ulu. I am Master Abata, and you behold now my great and wondrous circus. We have traveled far, collecting all manner of fantastic beasts and curious personages. And we have stopped for a few days before continuing on to Kasi. Tonight, as your guests, we will put on a show the likes of which has never been seen along the Luaba River. I invite you to come out to be amazed and astounded. At his words, a stream emerged from the other carriages, men leading muzzled red-striped hyenas, women on the backs of giant sloths, children who somersaulted or walked on their hands. The crowd watched in wonder, and in Tausi's mind, possibilities sprouted. She set out for the circus that night, following the crowds along paths lit by glowing aether lamps. None could remember the last time a circus came to Epo'ulu, and it was not to be missed. Women donned fine liputa skirts for the occasion, and men colorful short knee pants and airy cotton shirts in imitation of city dandies. Tausi wore a turquoise and red top with a matching wrap and sandals. The circus was a welcome reprieve from her aunt's daily visits. More important, Master Abata claimed his caravan was heading next to Kasi. This could well be the escape she sought. She found the great and wondrous circus sprawled along a clearing near the market. It was made up of billowing white canopies bearing the chieftain's seal of sanction. Two moons, one great and one small. It had been over three centuries since a night with more than one moon. Not since the long war, when the Efe unleashed magic hurtling sister into smaller brother, shattering him and leaving a jagged scar across her surface. The world had bore the brunt of this lunar fratricide, as continents cracked and the sea gods returned to reclaim ceded land. The wounded moon was now forever circled by the broken remnants of her brother, whose bones she held close. The Efe disappeared soon after, but their legacy remained written in the heavens. And on the world they left us to rebuild, Tausi thought. She joined one of the many lines snaking into the circus, where money handlers snapped up currency like hungry fish. When a scrawny boy barked the price of admission, five red golds, she balked. But there was no other way to find the circus master. She handed the ingots over, sucking her teeth to show her indignation. The many sights of the circus soon made her forget the expense. Moko men in colorful straw danced on towering stilts. Masked figures spit fire and walked barefoot on heated stones. Acrobats dangled from ropes and soared through the air to the gasps of spectators. One woman twisted her body into a brass trunk half her size. Another stood on her hands, arched her back, and lit a smoking pipe with her feet. Between the dazzling spectacles, Tausi asked after Master Abata. 
but the man moved constantly about and was ever surrounded by enthralled audiences. She would have to find a way to talk to him alone. She was eating a mango doused in fiery pilly-pilly sauce and trying to reason that problem out when she came upon a canopy in the far back of the circus. It was curiously quiet given the clamor coming from the others. She slipped inside to see what it held and gaped. A giant cat lounged in one corner. It was almost as big as a forest elephant, with thick, emerald fur broken by slashes of ivory. It sat upright, displaying two back legs, two in its middle, and yet another pair at its front, six in all. At her approach, it swung a pair of yellow eyes to regard her while twitching a white tufted ear. She stared back, wondering at how such a magnificent beast could be. It took a moment to notice the others. In another corner, there sat a jab man. She'd always believed such men were the stuff of stories and questioned for a moment if he was simply costumed. But the bone-white horns jutting from his forehead looked decidedly real and the black skin covering his slender body rippled even as he remained still. He wore only a long white kilt at his waist and sat silent with legs drawn up beneath him, eyes closed as if sleeping. The third figure was as strange as her companions. From head to torso, she was a woman with creased sepia-toned skin and flattened breasts that spoke her age. But beneath that, she was an okapi, with a russet body similar to an antelope and four long legs covered in white bands. She bowed her head, staring at something between unkempt graying locks that framed her face. Tausi followed the okapi woman's gaze to a black chain encircling one of her forelegs. She looked to the jab man to see similar chains wrapping his chest, near unnoticeable against his skin. One of the giant cat's legs held the same, longer, but no larger than the rest. The chains are of oromantic design, a voice spoke. Tausi whirled about to find none other than Master Abata. The bells and tassels of his peculiar kilt rattled as he walked, his winged baboon scampering behind. He pointed to the chain binding the Okapi woman's foreleg. Wrought by Obui metallurgists, they drain magic. I was able to procure some for my collection. It gentles such creatures, you see. Tausi fumbled for a response, thrown by his unexpected appearance. He talked through her silence, gesturing to the great cat. I captured that one on the western savanna when he was little more than a cub, right from his mother's lair. He is a jangu cat, bred for battle by sorcerer lords during the long war. They were said to be fierce fighters, but loyal to their masters. A rare beast indeed. He returned to the Okapi woman. Her... I found wandering the edges of the Ituri. They say whole bands of them live in that cursed forest. I bound her while she slept. 
do you know that she has never spoken a word to me? Not one, no matter my many persuasions. Tausi said nothing, looking on the Okapi woman and the Jangu cat with new eyes. These were not performers in Master Abata's show. They were his captives. Then there is this one. The circus master turned to the jab man. A devious creature, bound to their bargains and contracts. He tried to trick me, but I got you in the end, didn't I? The jab man didn't reply. He never moved or once opened his eyes. Master Abata sniggered, looking over his menagerie the way a moneylender gloated over his hoard. Reaching to his waist, he drew out a smoking pipe and an iron tinderbox carved like a bird. Sparks flew as he struck the flint and touched the heated stick to the bowl. In moments, the stink of burning daga leaf rode the air. I was told that a local town girl has been searching for me this night. Yet I find her and only hear my own talk. Perhaps her tongue needs loosening? He extended the pipe in offering. Tausi hesitated and then reached out to accept. She'd once snuck a pull from her father's pipe to see what the fuss was about and nearly choked to death coughing. This time was little different. Master Abata's laughter accompanied her hacking, and she thrust his awful pipe back to him, doubled over in a fit. When she regained herself, she found him grinning. This southern daga leaf is of fine quality, yes? Tausi had no idea how to account the worth of daga leaf, but she could feel the building euphoria that left her lightheaded. She found her tongue quite loosed, and words spilled out easily. The circus master sat silent when she'd finished, his dark face wreathed in wisps of white smoke. The small baboon flew up to rest on his shoulder, regarding Tausi from behind a crimson wing pulled across its face like a veil. You make quite a curious request, he spoke at last. It won't be for long, she said, at least until Kasi. And what is it you will do in Kasi? I thought to join a guild house or hire on with a sky ship. The circus master chortled. What does a backwater town girl know of sky ships? Tausi's face heated. I just need to get there. And how would you pay passage were I to grant this? I can give you 50 red golds. Eh, you would eat three times that alone from here to Kasi. Tausi faltered. So much? She'd hoped to hold on to most of her money. It would do no good to arrive in Kasi a beggar. I could work for you she offered. The circus master's eyebrows rose. You are a performer, a juggler. What is it you think you can do for my circus? Tausi once again had no answer. He read her silence and clucked his tongue. When I heard some local girl was asking after me, I inquired of her with the people of this town. 
they are very good at whispering. Isn't that so, daughter of the bandit queen? Towsy drew back at the question. As always, her mother cast a long shadow. And if I am? She asked, voice tight. That would make you interesting, the circus master replied. Tell me, does the daughter bear any of her mother's talents? Towsy took in the look on his face. It was the same he set upon his menagerie, those creatures he bound in chains. If I did, she answered evenly, the witch hunters would have taken me. He considered this, then said, Nkasi, people might pay well to view the daughter of the bandit queen, but she would need more to convince others she is who she claims to be. Tell me, does she still hold her mother's great spear? Towsy was unable to hide her confusion. A spear? A great spear, the circus master corrected. The stories of the bandit queen traveled the chiefdoms. The woman who spoke blasphemy against the Efe priests dared to use forbidden magic and showered the poor with stolen wealth. They say she came and went without being seen, wearing a red cloak and carrying a spear with a long blade of gray steel etched with strange lettering. It was never recovered. Towsy was at a loss. I don't know anything about that. Master Abata pursed his dark lips, his face growing disenchanted. A shame, for if the bandit queen's daughter ever found such a spear, it would do much to convince me to grant her passage. With that, he turned abruptly and walked from the canopy, leaving a trail of daga smoke that hung in the air with Tausi's hopes. For three days, she hunted the spear. If her mother had such a weapon, Towsy had never seen it. But her memories were of a woman who sang songs that lulled her to sleep, a woman who swayed when she walked and wore dashing colors, who smiled and laughed and told stories of clever birds and crocodiles. The bandit queen, the woman who forsook her family to wage war against the ten chiefdoms, was a stranger, a legend shrouded in secrets. She'd asked her father once how he could have let her take such risks. He'd laughed. No one ever let her mother do anything, he'd said. She'd told him she had to. Otherwise, the crocodiles would eat away at her, bit by bit. As she hunted, Towsy fended off her aunts, who now spoke boldly of families who might offer a decent bride price. Her only refuge came at night, at the circus. She spent most of her time in the canopy, marveling at the Janggu cat. When she looked upon the chains that kept it bound, she was saddened, and in its feline eyes, she sometimes thought she saw reflected her own yearnings to be free. Master Abata visited each night, both to look over his menagerie and to ask after her success. She had tried in vain to make another trade, but the circus master was skilled at bartering and had made his price plain. 
It was on the third night, after he had come and gone, leaving her despairing, that the jab man first spoke. He not going to keep his word. Towsie jumped. The canopy was usually empty. People fast grew disinterested with its odd occupants that performed little. Save for Master Abata's visits, she had become used to the solitude. But when she turned to the jab man, she found him staring. It was the first time she saw those eyes open. She'd imagined they would be that same liquid black as his skin. But she hadn't expected the pupils, pinpricks of light like fine stars. It took a moment to find her voice. What do you mean? she asked. The circus master not going to keep his word, the jab man repeated. His smooth voice had an almost sing-song accent she couldn't place. The spear is what he want. He will take it. If you lucky, he cut your throat on the road. If you not lucky, he sell you to a brothel merchant. He cocked a horned head and grinned his pearl-white teeth at the dread spreading on her face. Or did you think the great cities was just fancy guild houses, sky ships, and bacchanal? Why do you say such things? she stammered. The jab man brought his hands up to grip at his chains. Because I know the worth of the circus master's bargains. He nodded to the Okapi woman. And I see the wickedness he do she. One day, one day, Kangote, he sang. Time gon' catch up with he. Talsi looked to the Okapi woman, only now understanding something was broken in her bowed form. She never fully trusted the circus master. He had too much of the crocodile in him. Perhaps, however, she hadn't fully grasped the sharpness of those teeth. But why would he... She began. You not asking the right question, the jab man snapped. You see me? I a real mako. I does watch people. I watch you, even with me eyes closed. You is a smart one. Do play dotish now. Talsi had no idea what dotish meant, but she didn't like it. The right question, however, became clear. Why does he want my mother's spear? The jab man smiled. When he spoke, Master Abata's voice flowed from his lips. A spear with a long blade of gray steel, etched with strange lettering. He returned to his own voice. The spear is magic, girl. An old weapon from Alua, long war when Alua went mad and almost destroyed your blasted selves. Talsi listened, bemused. A magic spear? Where would her mother come across such a thing? She thought carefully before asking her next question. What does the spear do? Many things, he replied. Gray steel come from the Ituri, where the Efe once called home. Talsi started, 
the Efe lived in the Aturi? But the priests say they were gods who came down from the heavens to punish us. The jab man rolled his eyes. Nancy stories. The Efe was people, just like you. Only small, small so. Then Alya bring ye long war to the forest. The Efe do have big man weapons. Or Obeya what can summon demon armies. So they call on the Aturi to save them. And the Aturi old with deep, strong magic. Strong enough to break the world. The spear your mother have, it make from that same Ituri magic, old and deep. Talsi had never heard such things. She'd been taught that it was the Efe who gifted the priests the power to found the ten chiefdoms, to assure a lasting peace after the long war, and to create the edicts on magic. Why are you telling me this? she asked. Because the circus master fooling you with the talk, the jab man said. All skin, teeth, they laugh. He's not going to take you from this place. I will. That took her by surprise. You? I don't mean offense, but you can't even free yourself. But you can, with the spear. He gestured to his chains. That magic can break this oromancy. Free me, and I will take you with me. Kasi, Mabasa, any city of the ten chiefdoms, any city in the world. I can take us there in an instant. Tausi thought back to the stories she'd heard of Jabmen, that they could traverse vast distances, appearing wherever they wished. Perhaps he could be her escape. Only there was one problem. I don't know where the spear is, she admitted. Of course not, the jab man remarked. You searching for it with your eyes. She frowned. What was that supposed to mean? He sighed as if explaining a thing to a child. Your mother not going to let she enemy take she spear. Before they catch she, she would have sent it away. Away? Where? Beyond the world, maybe, or the spaces between. Who can say? She shook her head. Now he wasn't making sense at all. I know this, he continued. A magic spear can only be found again by magic. Tausi's insides seized. I don't know any magic, she said flatly. The jab man leaned forward in his chains, straining taut muscles beneath his ebon skin. That basket da hold water, he hissed. Lie to the circus master. Lie even to yourself, but not to me. I can feel the magic you hiding. The magic your mother teach you. It's sweet in you. Sweet too bad. Tausi's heart pounded, her soul laid bare in that gaze. Do fix up your face so, the jab man chided, settling back and easing his shoulders. I do care about your priests and their scooped laws. Find that spear. Set me free and I do the same for you. With that, he turned and, closing his eyes, spoke no more. 
Towsy left the circus, carrying with her a knotted bundle of thoughts. Master Abata, the Jab Man, the Efe, a magic spear, and of course, there was her mother. She still remembered the day the witch hunters had come to their house, two men in black robes with inked faces and silver-capped teeth. The guardsmen that accompanied them had stepped down from the leather stirrups of his armored pangolin to deliver the body atop the wheeled bier the creature dragged behind. The writ of execution he carried bore the two-moon stamp of the chiefdoms. Towsie hadn't wanted to look at the corpse wrapped in white. Instead, she kept her eyes on the pangolin, counting its overlapping golden scales and trying to gauge the length of its claws, even after her father had begun to wail. When she reached home, she gathered what she would need and walked to her mother's room. Her father had built around that space, and it felt as if she stood in the house's heart. She seldom came here, but tonight she let the wounded moon's broken light pour in. She put on one of her mother's dresses, a green fabric patterned with leaves, marveling that it now fit her. The soil she held she sprinkled across the floor and poured water and bush wine in libation. Then she sat down in front of her small offering and called on the magic. It had been a long time since she dared allow herself this. Magic frightened her. Not for the reasons it frightened others who condemned what they didn't understand, what they had forgotten, blaming it for what men did to the world. Magic frightened Towsy because of the fear it created in others the fear that allowed for witch hunters, the fear that allowed laws that demanded her mother's life. That fear lived inside her, a crocodile that gnawed and devoured from within. But tonight, she would face that fear. She had to if she was ever to escape this place. After such a long time denying the magic, she wondered if it would even come. Or if, like an unused appendage, it withered and atrophied. A prickling on her skin was the first hint at an answer. The torrent that followed was staggering. Magic flooded into her, racing through her limbs until it tingled at her fingertips and bled through her pores. A damned river set free and now eager to spill its banks. The crocodile inside her fought and drowned in its depths, and she trembled with exhilaration. The jab man had been right. The magic was sweet. So, so sweet. Pushing her hands into the offering of earth, water, and spirit, she blended them together. This had been one of the first bits of magic she'd been taught. Her aunts thought her mother had no people or family, but that wasn't true. Her mother had come from a long line of women who worked magic, and their spirits were always there when called. Towsie had neglected them, frightened to awaken even a sliver of that power. But if the jab man was right, she needed their aid. She hoped they would hear her now as she sang, Come, mothers. Come see your daughters. 
Come mothers whose daughters are calling. Come mothers whose daughters are waiting. Come mothers, come see your daughters. Her lips chanted the familiar words. A mother's lullaby sung to her in the dark of night as her hands worked. And she soon found she was not chanting alone. Other voices sang with her. They came first in their ones and twos, and then in scores. Women of her blood. Women tied to her by a thread of magic that extended through the ages. Before the F.A. priests and witch hunters and the breaking of the world. Their hands settled over her own, moving to her rhythm as they sang together. One voice rose above them in her ears, a voice with arms that held her close again, with fingers that wiped her tears and lips that gently kissed her dampened cheeks. Then, as one, the voices fled. Towsy opened her eyes, not remembering when she had closed them. There, on the ground in front of her, sat a lengthy rod of dark wood, banded along its shaft. One end held a triangular blade, longer than her arm. It shone in the wounded moon's light, revealing etched markings upon a surface of slate-gray steel. Her heart leapt, wondering if this was an apparition, some trick of the mind. But when she gripped the wooden shaft with a muddied hand, it was solid and real enough. And it had not come alone. Beside the spear sat a bundle of crimson. Wiping her fingers clean, she lifted it to find it was a cloak, stitched with small mirrors that reflected blackness and drank in moonlight. She clutched the cloak close. Her mother had sent back more than her spear this night. She'd gifted Towsy a piece of herself, something to help evade the crocodiles that hunted in the river. Towsy returned to Master Abata's great and wondrous circus, swathed in shadows. Her mother's cloak rendered her unseen in the night, and any eye still awake slipped over her without notice. The crowds had gone, and she made her way through the sleeping grounds. When she slipped inside the canopy, only the Janggu cat stirred. His yellow eyes flickered awake, and he lifted his head to search out the unseen presence. Towsi didn't lower the mirrored cloak until she knelt before the jab man. His eyes flew open. Before he could speak, she revealed the spear, then wavered. You promised to take me, she said. Yes. His bright pupils were eager. That the bargain we make. She looked to the Janggu cat, having already decided she would not abandon him. And we take him too. The jab man nodded. Whatsoever. She pointed then to the Okapi woman. We shouldn't leave her chained either. I wouldn't think of it, the jab man agreed. Come now, release me. Satisfied with their arrangement, Towsy brought the spear point to tap the black chain. She didn't know what to expect as the etchings on the blade began to writhe. When the chains crumbled to black dust, she gasped. The jab man scrambled to his feet. Howling with glee, he did a little dance, winding his hips lewdly and rolling his sinewy torso. 
Leaving him to his celebration, Talsi turned to the Okapi woman, who might have been sleeping for all her silence. Mama, she called. I'm going to free you now. Do you understand? The Okapi woman never raised her bowed head. Sighing, Talsi touched the blade to the chains and watched them collapse. The Okapi woman stirred then. A statue returned to life. She lifted a foreleg as if testing her freedom. Raising her head, she revealed a weathered face with eyes swathed in black. Eyes so haunted, Talsi thought her heart might break. They darted about, searching her surroundings. Unexpectedly, she began to speak in an unfamiliar tongue, her voice frantic, then angry. I don't understand, Mama, Talsi apologized. But the words only grew in pitch, and those swathed eyes were no longer haunted. They seethed. The Okapi woman lifted her arms, and the air in the room prickled, hundreds of needles biting the skin, a feeling Talsi knew all too well. There was a shout from the Okapi woman, followed by fire. It erupted from her hands in fluid white streams, tearing holes through the canopy and lighting up the dark. It raced across the circus, putting all it touched to flames. And the screams of animals and people soon rose up into the night. Talsi fell onto the ground, crawling backwards to avoid the dripping fire. The Okapi woman radiated magic. Talsi had never seen so much a bright, turbulent sea that churned in waves and eddies. The woman swept that power up with her arms and hurled it out into the night. She bellowed with rage as someone else laughed. The jab man. He danced amidst the flames unharmed, reveling in the destruction. Talsi shouted to him. The air that entered her throat was searing. What's happening? Why is she doing this? The jab man turned a gaze to her that competed with the fire. He seemed somehow larger, his curving horns sharper, and his skin like melted pitch. When he spoke, his voice was guttural. Oh, yeah, think to chain up a child of the Aturi? You think to chain me? A slave gone burn down she master house. Watch she. Talsi stared in horror. He had wanted this. The grin he cast at her realization split his face wide. Hear this. Don't ever cross a job, man. A roar shook the canopy, and she looked to see the Janggu cat rearing back from the flames. The black chain kept him bound, and he would burn if he remained. Pushing to her feet, she ran towards him through smoke and fire. When she came close, he bared his teeth and six pairs of jade claws, an animal's fear in his eyes. She slowed her approach. He didn't strike, but watched her movement. Reaching out with the tip of the spear, she touched the black chain. When it crumbled, the great cat wasted no time. She threw herself back as he bounded past, fleeing the burning canopy and running out into the night. Eh! Hey. Look, trouble now, the jab man cried. Talsi turned to see a man newly arrived, silhouetted against the flames. Master Abata. His eyes surveyed the chaotic scene of his menagerie, then stopped in bewilderment upon her. She never got a chance to shout a warning, for the Okapi woman saw him first. 
Streams of magic lashed out to envelop the circus master. At first, nothing appeared amiss. But when his skin blackened and liquid fire gushed from his screaming throat, Towsy realized he was burning from within. His body folded, collapsing into a pyre that blazed with white flames. The small baboon that was the man's constant companion chewed frenziedly through its leash. Breaking free, it shrieked as it winged into the night, its feathers trailing smoke and embers. Moon does run until daylight catch up with he, the jab man sneered. He pulled his satisfied gaze from the dead man and extended a hand. Let we go. Towsy looked to the offered hand and then back to the flames that devoured the circus master like a living thing. She'll burn the whole town, she coughed amid the smoke. We have to stop her. Not our bargain, the jab man retorted. People will die. He shrugged. How you care so for this place now? Towsy winced. There was little love in her for Epoulu. True enough, she was eager to leave it behind. But she couldn't just let it burn. Not all those people, even with their whispers. Not even her scheming aunts. She had to put an end to this. Stop her, she said, this time a demand. Not our bar. In exchange for our bargain, she cut in. The jab man's eyes narrowed to brilliant slits. If this some trick... No trick, she assured. Master Abata's charring remains were enough to dissuade such idiocy. That's my price for freeing you. The jab man cocked his head. You give up your bargain for all of them. Towsy nodded firmly. She would if it meant no one else would die. He grinned a crocodile smile. Accept it. There was a pause. But I can't stop, she. He met Towsy's livid glower. Cut I don't kill, you know. I can't stop, she. But I can tell you how. A black finger pointed to the spear. Towsy eyed the weapon uncertainly. I don't want to kill her. Then don't kill her, the jab man taunted. Towsy stifled her irritation. The creature was insufferable. Rising, she faced the Okapi woman with one last appeal. The man who hurt you is gone, she cried out. You can stop. The Okapi woman turned to stare at this interloper to her retribution and hurled magic in thick streams. Towsy had time only to lift her spear against the deluge. She expected to be burned away, but as the magic struck, the gray steel blade cleaved through the currents, sending them dissipating about her. Emboldened, she walked forward. The Okapi woman screamed and hurled magic anew in violent cascades. Pushing against it was like facing a wind that pushed back in turn. But Towsy bowed her head and planted her legs firm, those strong legs passed on by her mother, and pressed through the maelstrom. When she reached the Okapi woman, she lifted the spear. Stop, she pleaded. Please! 
Her answer was a thrust of magic that almost swept her back. But she swung the spear, striking the Okapi woman across the shoulder with the flat of the blade. The etchings on its surface came alive as it met skin, and something powerful rushed into the gray slate steel. The force of it almost sent Tausi to her knees, and her hands shook as she fought to hold the spear's shaft. Then, abruptly, it was done, and there was silence. The tempest that had roiled about the Okapi woman was gone. You take her magic, the jab man explained. He walked up to point at the spear that now hissed with smoke, not heat, but a deep cold that covered the gray metal in a light frost. Everywhere the fire looked to be dying, leaving behind smoldering ruin. My bargain done, he declared. I leave now, without you. Wait, one more thing. Tausi looked to the Okapi woman, shrunken now without her magic. She stood staring at her hands as if trying to recall what they'd held. You have to take her back to the Ituri. When cock have teat, the jab man scoffed, not our bargain. She turned to face him. If she stays here, she'll be killed. By the people you saved, he jeered. Yes, but I'm not making a bargain for me. I'm making one for her. She gestured to the Okapi woman. The rage was gone from those eyes, which were haunted once more. You knew she would do this. You used her hurt for your revenge and gave her nothing in return. That's the way of your kind, isn't it? Bargains and contracts? Well, you're in her debt, and you'll pay it by taking her home. The jab man glared, and anger rippled across his features, his skin seeming to boil. She met that bright gaze unflinching, as her mother would have done. A clever little bird that survived by outwitting the crocodiles that would eat her up. Girl smart like she mother, he rasped through bared teeth. Goat don't make sheep in truth. He snatched up the Okapi woman's hand, startling her. We play this game again, ain't? I doubt it, Tausi said tersely. He flashed a grin, and the two of them vanished. Tausi sighed deep, thinking on what she had just given up. But it felt right. Her mother had passed on more than she knew, it seemed. She hoisted the spear to her shoulder, wandering at her next course when a rumbling growl came from the night. She turned to find the Jangu cat emerging from the smoke and darkness. He had returned. He crept forward on six legs with the sleekness of a hunter, his gaze fixed on her. She tensed as those yellow eyes drank her in. He reared up before her, but she didn't run. She'd seen too much this night to run. She held her ground and, instead, reached up a hand to stroke the thick fur of his neck. It felt as beautiful as she had imagined. When he didn't pull away, she smiled. The people of Epo'ulu say that on that night, a strange fire burned down the circus that had come to market. 
water pumped from the river could not quench the flames, and there was fear it would sweep into Epo'ulu itself. Inexplicably, the fire died away, like the hand of a god had snuffed it out. What had saved the town, none knew, but many claimed to see a woman emerging from the smoke. She rode upon a monstrous cat, holding aloft a spear, while a red cape flapped in her wake. As the two sped away from Epo'ulu beneath the wounded moon, shouts rose up along the Luaba River. The bandit queen, the people cried. She lives. Fantasy Magazine. Welcome back. You just heard The Things My Mother Left Me by P. Digilee Clark, performed by Jamie Grant. This story is copyright 2016. It first appeared in Fantasy Magazine's People of Color Destroy Fantasy Special Issue and appears here by permission of the author. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to read more great fantasy stories, you'll find them every month in Fantasy. If you're not already a subscriber, check our many options at fantasy-magazine.com slash subscribe. Our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. It produces the stories for this podcast. They're headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stephen Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Post-production is an association with Jim Freund. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Fantasy Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. I'm eternally yours, Terrence Taylor, wishing you cheers from everyone destroying fantasy. Talmor is my home. My family have worked the land for generations. My grand says the island does not belong to us, but we belong to the island. And we must be ready, for a great evil is coming. And death follows with it. Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a Storyglass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. GZM Shows and the creators of Six Minutes are rolling out their newest audio adventure with the podcast Discovering Dad. A cautious single dad with a secret past and his rebellious kids embark on a thrilling quest complete with hidden treasure, villains, and a family curse. 
New episodes of Discovering Dad roll out weekly starting June 11th on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show so you never miss an episode. Or listen early and ad-free as a GZM Show subscriber. Go to gzmshows.com to learn more.